0: Well, if you are new and visiting, you might not be aware we're uh, right in the middle now of a series in Isaiah. Last week we were looking at the wisdom of God from Isaiah chapter 9 and 11. Now we've moved on through, we're, we're powering through to Isaiah chapter 25. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, Isaiah chapter 25. If last week we are looking at wisdom, this week we're looking at victory, And I think God's Word's got some great things to to teach us this morning. So Isaiah 25, I'm going to read from verse 6 and then pray for us. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come before you, your word, Lord, we pray. Give us a taste of your victory. Give us a taste of the glorious future we have in you, Lord. We pray. Lord, may there be no hopelessness here this morning, Lord. May there be no despair. May there be no lost wandering, Lord, but only trust and faith in you as we see you, Lord, more clearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin this morning by reading uh, to you a story I read on CNN um, at the start of this year, but I read it afresh uh, just this week, and uh, I wanted to share with you. It's entitled, Japanese Soldier Who Long Refused to Surrender Dies at 91. The columnist writes, A Japanese soldier who hunkered down in the jungles of the Philippines for nearly three decades refusing to believe that World War II had ended, has died in Tokyo. Hiro Onoda was 91 years old. In 1944, Onoda was sent to the small island of Lubang in the western Philippines to spy on US forces in the area. Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial Army in the Philippines in the later stages of the war, but Onoda, a lieutenant, evaded capture. While most of the Japanese troops on the island withdrew or surrendered in the face of oncoming American forces, Anoda and a few fellow holdouts hid in the jungle, dismissing messages saying the war was over. For 29 years, he survived on food gathered from the jungle or stolen from local farmers. After losing his comrades to various circumstances, Anoda was eventually persuaded to come out of hiding in 1974, his former commanding officer travelling to Lubang to see him and tell him he was released from military duties. In his battered and old army uniform, Anoda handed over his sword nearly 30 years after Japan surrendered. You know, friends, this story would almost be funny if it wasn't so tragic. And I think it, as a story, illustrates the devastating effect of missing a victory cry. The devastating effect of missing a victory cry leading to a life that was wasted. And similarly, in Isaiah, there is a great victory cry. And friends, if you miss it, you will waste your life. So this morning's message is entitled, Behold Your Redeemer in His Victory. And we have three main points, and that is victory consummated, victory complete, victory considered. Three main points, but really one hope for this message, and that is that you would not miss the life-changing implications of God's final victory. Friends, I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss the life-changing implications of God's final victory that we see here in the book of Isaiah. So so let's get stuck into the text. Um, By way of context, uh, this is at the end of our passage, chapter 25, is uh, at the end of a section about God uh, versus the nations where God uh, basically details in, in chapters 13 through to 27 a list of accusations and judgments against all the nations. From Babylon to Assyria, Moab, Syria, Cush, Egypt, Jerusalem, Tyre and Sidon, it goes on and on and on, accusation after accusation, judgment after judgment, until we get to chapter 24, when the judgment moves from details of all the specific nations surrounding Israel to the, to the whole of the earth. And so even though we're looking this morning at, at chapter 25, I want to begin by uh, asking you to turn back to chapter 24 and reading you just a, a couple of, of verses to paint the picture of where we are in the book. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1. Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Then verse 3. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The whole earth will be devastated, Isaiah says in the future. The whole of the earth, not a a bit escaping from the judgment of the Lord. But this is not just wild judgment. This is not wild devastation. This is redemptive judgment. Because if we flick down now to verse 14, we see a redeemed earth. It says, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord and the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Judgment across the whole of the earth leading to redemption and praise. It's a beautiful picture. And our passage that we're beginning with this morning in Isaiah chapter 5, Verse 1 begins with one of these songs of praise. One of the songs that the saints will sing on that final future day. It's a vision of the world at the Lord's return. This is what his people sing. So turn over the page with me to Isaiah 25, verse 1. His people sing. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. His people saying, oh Yahweh, you're my God. You're my king. You have done literally miraculous things. God's works throughout history bringing his people safely through were miraculous. God's final judgment in which he destroys his enemies once and for all will be miraculous. And so his people sing. They sing praises to him. Plans formed of, oh, this is not, this is not spontaneous thinking on your feet. This is long thought of, infinitely wise plans of God. And this is what his people sing. Faithful and Trustworthy. Well, let's keep reading. Verse two. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigners' palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. The city here in Isaiah chapter twenty-five and twenty-four, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for all of civilization. And here in this passage, Isaiah, uh, as he foretells this song that people will sing. They sing, God has destroyed them all. God has wiped out civilization as we know it. The city lies in a heap. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Therefore strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. He envisions a day when the strongest, the most ruthless of nations of the earth, they'll fear God. They will fall on their knees in fear. The poor, the needy, the oppressed are all protected by God's sovereign care. And the city's civilization, as we know it, is destroyed. All nations will come to an end. The United States, Russia, China, Indonesia, the UK, India, France, no more. God has destroyed them all and he will govern the whole of the earth himself. All his enemies will be destroyed and all will praise him. Every people. You know, on that final day, there will only be two sorts of people. Those that are praising God and those that are being destroyed by Him. And so we read on. Verse 5. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. Literally, you humble the roar of foreigners. The nations, they roar and, and fight against God, but God says he will humble them just like heat disappears as a cloud comes over the sun. There will be no competition. The rebellion of nations, it's like a, like a storm against a wall or, or like heat in the middle of a desert. It's nothing to him. Well, he goes on. Now the, the song moves from an individual song to God's people together in chorus. In verse 9, we read It will be said on that day Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Twice it's repeated. We have waited for Him. We have waited for Him. We as, as God's people, as Christians, we're the people who wait, aren't we? We're the people waiting for that, for that final day. Well, Waiting for what specifically? It's repeated twice. Waiting for His salvation. We have waited for Him to save us. We will rejoice in His salvation. We are people waiting that He might save us. Save us from our enemies. Save us from reviling. You know, the other day I was watching the the World Cup soccer and I was watching that World Cup match between Australia and the Netherlands. And you know when Tim Cahill scored that amazing goal off a volley into the top corner, you know, he he left the whole world for just a moment in disbelief as Australia leveled 1-1. And then when a handball led to a penalty shot and the Aussie captain, Mille Jedernak, just calmly sunk that ball, you know, to the left of goal. You know, everyone was going crazy as Australia led 2-1. You know, just for a moment, believing, just for a moment, thinking that maybe Australia might upset an absolute soccer superpower of the world, the Netherlands. Now, obviously, the victory wasn't, wasn't uh, long-lived, and the Netherlands quickly scored two more goals, and we lost the match 3-2, but... Just that joy, just like disbelief as everyone's going nuts in the stadium. I think, I think that is a picture of what this song is all about. The absolute joy of final victory. Except, you know, our joy won't be temporary like a soccer's goal. It'll be eternal forever and ever. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on his mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in its place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. Moab uh, here in the end of this vision, it symbolizes all the rebellious nations of earth. All of the people in rebellion against God and and God says he will lay his protective hand over his people while with the rebellious Moab, with people who rebel against him, just like a swimmer with the very same hand, one hand protecting his people, another hand wiping them out of the face of the earth. His people... Will be vindicated for waiting for Him. There is a day coming when His people will be vindicated, when His people will be victorious. But often it, it it doesn't feel like we're on the winning side, does it? I mean, have you ever felt that way? Like, are we are we even really on the winning side? I mean, think about it. New atheism attacking, saying religion is dangerous. You know, we have sex scandals in the church time and time again. We have the rise of the liberal church that says this word is just good advice. It's not actually the word of God. We have a public shift away from Christian values, scripture in schools, a vocal gay lobby, abortion. And we have this general rise in the self-confidence of society that thinks it knows the best way, the right way to live. Coupled with people, family and friends that we know that have rejected God, that just seem to prosper and live good, successful lives. And in light of this all, we can begin to question, can't we? Are we really on the winning team? I mean, it feels like we're on the losing team. It feels like we're, we're not on the winning team at all. Well, here in Isaiah, we read, there is a final day. There is a final day when we will sing, you are my God and every knee will bow. If you trust in God, you will not be put to shame. Well, here in Isaiah, we are pointed to a day when God's victory will be consummated and there will be no competition whatsoever point one victory is consummated point two victory complete not only will the victory be consummated it will be beyond anything you can imagine in its completeness read with me verse six again On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, a banquet for all peoples, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, none left out, all included. And at this this banquet that Isaiah foresees that the Lord promises, it's literally it says a feast of rich food, literally a feast of fatness. A fatty feast. This was a people not worried about cholesterol at all. It's the choicest food, the, the richest food, the finest of wine, wine well aged, fatty food full of marrow, the best aged wine. It's an amazing banquet with the tastiest food that you've ever tasted. I mean, who said heaven will be boring at all? It will have fine, delicious food. You know, two months ago, I was celebrating Ollie's Bucks uh, with a few of his closest friends when I enjoyed possibly the most delicious meat I've ever had the privilege of tasting, uh, surprisingly at the hands of Mike Pasolich. Mike had soaked hickory chips In uh, in wine, which he placed on burning coals, which I think his brother took about three hours to appropriately prepare them and get them to an appropriate temperature. And the result was possibly the smokiest, most tender meat I've ever tried. Well, that barbecue is but a glimpse of the amazing (laughs) feast that God has prepared here. But it gets better still, friends. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Isn't that beautiful? God is going to swallow up the veil that covers all nations, all people. All people lie under it. And that veil is death. You know, like the cloth placed over a dead body, God is going to swallow it up. He's going to remove it. You know, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, and when he says this, he means never, ever, ever die. You know, if you're a Christian, you will never die. You will die, but that will not be the end for you. You will live forever, enjoying the fruits of God's amazing banquet feast that he's prepared for you. Death is an enemy. It's the last enemy to be destroyed. It's unnatural, it's undignified, it's unpleasant. Yet it is a defeated enemy. And that's not all. Read on, verse 8. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's such a beautiful picture. The sovereign creator who, with his hand, wipes out the nations, will sit down with his people. And as a mother cares for a child, will wipe the tears from their faces. A beautiful picture of comfort and of care. He will take away their reproach, the mocking and the shame of the nations that say, Where's your God? Look how you are judged. Look how you are killed and destroyed. Where is your God? Where is He to save you? God will take away that mocking and that reviling on that last day. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation between god and his people god and his people once more together well there is a future here that we see isn't there where where all suffering will cease there'll be no disease no death no prison i mean i know many of you know my my sister still is in prison in russia and to think there's a day when there will be no more prison what a beautiful day no divorce No war, no abuse, no oppression, no suffering at all. But this banquet has even deeper significance. This banquet goes even deeper still because in the book of Isaiah we learn that this banquet points to something even more than a mere feast, something even greater than this again. In Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1, Isaiah writes... Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. In verse 6 he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The banquet is a picture of abundant pardon. Abundant forgiveness. That God will one day draw his people intimately back together with him. Forgiveness of sins, offered, reconciliation, restored relationship. That's what this banquet is about. You might be asking, well, how is this fair? How can God just forgive people for their sins? Even more than that, how is this even possible? And the answer to this is through the greatest victory of all. And that's the cross. You know, in Isaiah, we learn about a servant king a servant who is king, who is God himself and wins the most unlike, unlikely of victories. You know, the cross seemed actually the opposite of victory. The cross seemed like the greatest of all defeats. The defeat of good by evil. I just, I just imagine him there on the cross, spread-eagled, His hands nailed, his back bleeding, sighing for breath, rejected by his own people, with not a, a single supporter by, abandoned and alone. He cries in agony as he hangs there. Where is the victory? Where is the victory? How is this a victory? It seems like the greatest defeat the world has ever seen. And yet, as he hung on that cross, he was crushing the serpent. As he hung on that cross, he was paying the price in full that you and I deserved. What seemed to be the greatest defeat the world has seen was, in fact, the greatest victory the world has ever seen. As Jesus Christ took for us on that cross the penalty that you and I deserved... Hanging there, dying the full wrath of God upon his head. Not defeat, but victory. And through his blood, through his atoning death, his one-making death, his reconciling death, we, we sit at that banquet table, victorious along with Christ. A gift that's received purely through faith. Nothing we bring. Simply to the cross we clean. All of faith. And friends, that is our future. You know, Jesus Christ himself says, uh, himself says in John 4:14, 4, Whoever drinks the water I give will never ever thirst again. But that water will well up to a spring of eternal life. Jesus Christ offers us the free gift to come and sit at his banquet table. We have an incredible future in Christ. Complete reconciliation, complete victory. Well, lastly, victory considered. I wanted to just pause for a moment to just think about some of the implications of this victory with We've seen in Isaiah 25 a victory that will be consummated, a victory that's coming, a victory that will be so complete. Now let's pause to think about some ways in which this affects us, some implications of this victory. I have three real things that I wanted to draw out, three ways in which it makes a difference for us that we have this future victory. You could talk about many more, but I just felt this week as I was preparing these three things the Lord would teach us. The first one is that because of the victory we have in Christ, our story is different. We have a, a different story. And by story, I mean the way in which we understand our lives, the story we tell ourselves about the purpose of our life. You know, Sydney Siders, I believe, have a story, and the common story that we have is, is that my life is to enjoy my life, to enjoy it for as long as possible, with my family and my friends around me. To get a foot in the property market, then pay off that mortgage that I might enjoy my life for as long as possible with my family and friends around me. To get a job that's intellectually stimulating with flexible hours, good pay close to home, to be respected by my peers. To live for the long weekend and the long holiday. To discover the world, to taste the best. To taste the best coffee, the best wine, the best beer, the best restaurants. To provide the best for your kids, the best education, the best sports, the best music and dance. Then to retire and to enjoy my life as comfortably as possible, for as long as possible, with my family and friends around me. Friends, that's the story of people here in Sydney. But as Christians, we have a very different story. We have a very different purpose and plan to our lives because our story is is a victory-shaped story. For us as Christians, we find ourselves living in the brief moment between now and eternity. You know, as Christians, for us, life is transient. Life is just for a moment. But future eternally with Christ awaits us. Jesus, for us, is the victorious king who sits enthroned in heaven. In our lives, they're not hidden. But we live out our lives before his throne with Christ looking on as we wait for that final day. And there is a final day, a final victory day when we'll stand before his throne and give an account for for how we live. So we live our lives to serve him. Our money, our time, our work, our kids, our holidays, our enjoyment, they're all for him. You know, Peter, in his first letter that he writes, right at the beginning, he puts it this way. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter looks out at Christians and he addresses them and he says, Guys, you're aliens and strangers. You're just passing through. But you have a glorious living hope, a rich inheritance with Christ that's being stored up for you. So we have a different story. We have a very different story from the rest of Sydney because we're living in the brief moment between now and eternity. Well, secondly, not only do we have a different story, but we have different priorities. Our priorities are different. The way in which we prioritize our time, our money, our energy is is different. You know, like Hiro Onoda, I think, though, we can succumb to jungle living. We can succumb to jungle living. Like hiding in a jungle. Ignoring the victory of God. Focusing our time and our energy on work, on house, on holidays, on food, on kids, on enjoyment, on personal health. Hiding from God, denying his victory and ignoring his imminent return. Friends, we don't know when he's coming. He might come today. And how that makes a difference for how we live and the way in which we prioritize our time. You know, as Christians, we prioritize the things of God. As Christians, we give up all entitlement. We give up all our rights for now that we might enjoy eternity with Christ. It's the best deal ever, just for now, just for this moment that we could have forever with him. But sometimes this is so hard to do. I find it really hard to do. I mean, uh, earlier this year, I remember when it came to pledging for the Going Forward Fund and Charlotte and I decided we would pray about pray about it and seek the Lord individually as to how much he was calling us to give. And I remember when Charlotte came back to me with the amount that she felt the Lord was calling her to give. And I remember what my first thought was when she shared it with me. Are you serious? What a waste. What a waste of money. To give that to the Lord. And I was pausing about it and just thinking on it afterwards and again this week. Friends, if we really believe we live before the throne of God, if we really believe that our lives are just for a fleeting moment, it is never a waste. No money is too much. No work is too hard. There is no blood, sweat or tears that are ever wasted for the things of God. You know, Don Whitney in his book Disciplines of Grace puts it this way. He says, if there are any regrets in heaven, they will only be that we did not use our earthly time more for the glory of God and for growth in his grace. If this is so, this may be heaven's only similarity with hell which will be filled with agonizing laments over time so foolishly squandered. Friends, if we really live for the throne of God, our priorities will be different. Well, lastly, not only is our story different, our priorities are different, but our confidence is different. You know, all people naturally place confidence in themselves, whether they're religious and place confidence that their good works, their goodness, will measure up to God's standard, or they're non-religious and they place confidence in, in their ability to live up to their own standards, to be the good person that they think they should be, to succeed as much as they think they should. We all naturally place confidence in ourselves. We place confidence, though, as Christians, not in ourselves but outside ourselves in that final victory of God. We rest in that truth that we will, we will never be put to shame. But, as it says in verse 8, the reproach of his people he will take away in that final victory. So we share the gospel as we share the gospel with our friends, we know that even if we're rejected, even if people reject us and despise us, we have a, a Father in heaven that looks down on us and smiles. He is pleased. We know that He will care for all our needs as we work because our confidence is in Him. We worship trusting that Victory is his, that his church will be built, that he's coming again. We have a different confidence, a confidence not in ourselves, a confidence outside ourselves, a confidence that's in him. Well, victory consummated, victory complete, victory considered. May we not miss the life-changing implications of God's final victory. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we want to give thanks. Oh, Lord, thank you that there is a final victory. Thank you, Lord, that there is a day when you are coming and you will restore all things, that the earth and all that is in it will be full of your praises. Lord, bring that day. And Lord, we pray as we wait for eternity to come that you'd help us, Lord. Lord, help us, your people, to live with right priorities, Lord. Help me. Lord, help us to live with that final day so clearly in our vision, Lord, that we might live in a way that glorifies you. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.